0: The San Francisco Experience Podcast, brought to you by Jim Herlihy. Independent commentary from a Silicon Valley perspective for a global audience, featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 24, Episode 8, India As It Is, talking with author Daniel Markey, Senior Advisor on South Asia at the United States Institute of Peace. India marked an important milestone in 2023 its population reached 1.43 billion people, surpassing that of China. The economy continues to expand with a $4 trillion GDP achievable in 2024-25. At the same time, the country's place on the global stage is enhanced, and America's relationship with India is being transformed. In a recent article in Foreign Affairs, Dan Markey outlines the history of U.S.-India relations and how they are evolving. His work focuses on U.S. policy in South Asia, especially U.S.-India relations, regional relations, and China-South Asia relations. He joins us from his office in Washington, D.C. Hi, Dan, and welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Jim. Real pleasure to be with you.
0: Dan, please take a few minutes to tell us about your work at the U.S. Institute for Peace and your career.
1: Yeah, sure. For for those of your listeners who may not be familiar, uh, USIP, the US Institute of Peace, is um, actually congressionally mandated, congressionally funded institute. Our headquarters are literally across the street from the State Department in Washington, D.C. Um, we've got a few hundred people working there, and then at over a dozen different locations around the world. The institute is is dedicated, as you can imagine, to trying to advance peace and security both in terms of peace and security within societies, that is, places where you see civil wars or other kinds of conflicts, and also in places where you may see wars or the potential for crises between states, uh, say, between India and China, or China and Taiwan, and so on. I've been there for about two years. I came there from an academic post at Johns Hopkins University at their International Studies School. Uh, Before that, I was at a think tank at the Council on Foreign Relations, and Before that, I was actually at the State Department in an office uh, called Policy Planning, where I also worked on South Asia. A lot of my work's uh, been focused on India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, some of the other countries in South Asia, but increasingly, I've also been interested in China and China's role in the region. Mm -hmm. And my last book, which came out in 2020, was uh, called China's Western Horizon. It was about China's relations with South Asia, with Central Asia, and also with the Middle East. So... You know, I'm really into into foreign policy, uh, the kinds of things that people at the State Department work on, but also some of the ways of thinking about it have really been influenced by my academic career.
0: Very impressive. Dan, let's begin with the values that draw India and the United States together. Our democratic traditions are often cited as a common foundation, but our relations and history are quite complex where do we stand today
1: yeah so one of the things that struck me I, i've been working on the india relationship in terms of policy for about 20 years now and one of the things that's really struck me is how we have this kind of mantra to, that is uh we talk about india as the largest democracy and uh we describe ourselves as the oldest democracy and for decades now really actually since the founding of, of modern india as a democracy, we have seen that, that is Americans have seen that as something that should be a kind of a glue between our two countries and should also beyond and and should be an attraction uh, for India that makes India special. And and I think there's a certain truth to that. But we've also thought that because India was a democracy and we're a democracy, that we should see eye to eye with India on a lot of issues, uh, not just how we run our own countries, but issues outside of our countries, Mm -hmm. uh, other foreign policy issues. And one of the things that's so striking about that is how often we've been wrong. (laughs) That assumption just hasn't really been borne out by India's foreign policy or by our foreign policy or how they match up or, in fact, how they don't match up. Because of that, uh, I decided to write this article in in Foreign Affairs, came out last summer, because I really thought that we were, in a way, missing a big part of the U.S.-India story, which is Just the disconnect of that kind of values-based, democracy-oriented perspective on the relationship has led us to time and again, but simultaneously to appreciate that actually we have a lot of shared interests with India. There's a lot we should be doing with India to cooperate with them. There are a lot of shared concerns that we have about the world and so on. So this was not an argument for not working with India or seeing India as a useful partner. But in a, in a way, it was an argument for right-sizing our expectations for the relationship with India to match with what the actual history of our relationship has been.
0: Could we go back to Nehru? In the 1950s, yeah. of course, he declared that, uh, that India was going to be a non-aligned country. Both Presidents Eisenhower and Kennedy were very interested, in. and again, coming back to this democratic link, both mm-hmm. presidents often cited that, but uh, both of them argued very strenuously for increased food aid for India, which, uh, which was forthcoming in both administrations. Yet, India continued to cozy up to, if you will, to Moscow. They ended up having a friendship relationship with, uh, a friendship treaty, I should say, when Indira Gandhi Mm -hmm. was uh, was prime minister. On the one hand, if they were being non-aligned, why did they develop such a close and cozy relationship that included defense with the Soviet Union?
1: They were non-aligned. At times, non-alignment was probably a fairly accurate depiction of India's position, that is, India was seeking to have a reasonable relationship with the United States, whether it was food aid or at other times, uh, other kinds of assistance. They also wanted to have it both ways. They wanted to make sure that they weren't uh, finding themselves crosswise with the Soviets because, among other things, they were buying a lot of weapons from the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason why they were buying weapons from the Soviet Union is because we, the United States, were providing weapons to India's adversary, even at times hostile hostile enemy in Pakistan. And so uh, India was like Pakistan, seeing the world through their own kind of self-interested, localized perspective. They were worried about their security situation. They didn't trust the United States because we were working with their enemy. And so, you know, in international politics, sometimes that's, you know, power politics leads you to see... Uh, your enemy's enemy as your friend. And so seeing the Soviet Union and the benefits that it could bring India, the kinds of weapons that the Soviets were willing to sell, the kinds of uh, agreements they were willing to make, India found that at times to be a useful relationship as well. But the thing that's so striking about all of this is how India, at some basic level, didn't really see a problem with working with a big, clearly undemocratic state like the Soviet Union. Whereas the United States was often defining the world in terms of free versus unfree or Mm -hmm. behind the iron curtain or on the side of democracy. India just didn't view it that way. And that was a reflection in part of India's view that democracies like the United States, but especially Great Britain, hadn't been terribly liberal in their treatment of India, right? India was a post-colonial power or state and really uh, had a problem with some of the moralizing that was coming out of places like London or Washington and found fault in that. Saw it as deeply hypocritical. So from an Indian perspective, maybe it's a little less surprising that they uh, weren't buying the worldview that, that we have been so invested in. And certainly the way that we saw the Cold War kind of rang hollow in New Delhi. But U.S. presidents, as you pointed out, you know, we didn't always appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so whether it was Eisenhower or Kennedy, or, or subsequently, even after the Cold War, Clinton and, and so on, you know, saw India as a democracy and wanted to continue to highlight that aspect of its identity uh, in our relationship. But they sort of missed another part of the story repeatedly, and I think to their disadvantage, because they were sometimes surprised or even frustrated with India when, if they had been more realistic about it or appreciated what makes India unique, that wouldn't have come as a, so much a surprise.
0: Now, you mentioned, of course, the Soviet Union and their close ties to the Soviet Union. Of course, India and China share a very large border. And of, of course, they had a war in 1962 along the line of yep. control. And then, most recently, in the last couple of years, there were skirmishes uh, at that line of control, and several dozen Indian troops were killed. Tell us a little bit about that historic relationship between China and And India,
1: that's a relationship with you mentioned. What drove the India, uh, the Indians, in a sense, away from the United States? You know, the the hostility toward China after nineteen sixty-two was another factor. There, the United States saw China as certainly later as somewhat useful as a balancer against the Soviet Union. The Soviets, after the Sino-Soviet split, got very upset with the Chinese, and so India found itself and its alignment with Russia as being a kind of a reinforcing one as hostilities with China became a a bigger issue. Um, But you also mentioned the 2020 border dispute between India and China, and 62 and 2020 are, in a sense, very tightly linked. Mm -hmm. India and China have never agreed on the location of their border. Over a couple of thousand miles on very high and often incredibly difficult terrain, they simply don't agree where that border is located. So most of it's described as a line of actual control rather than an international uh, border, which means that both sides have what they think is the border line. But it's actually often those two lines are not the same, and often they cross each other. So that what you found at various points along that border is that Indian patrols will, military patrols will go up to the furthest extent of what India claims to be its boundary. Chinese patrols will go up to the furthest extent of what they believe is their boundary, and the two patrols will cross one another, and that's been true for decades. What happened since about the 1990s, basically, the late 80s through the 90s, till nearly the present, is that they kind of agreed on a series of mechanisms so that those patrols, when they ran into each other, they could manage that disagreement without coming to blows, or at least without coming to serious blows. And what broke down in 2020, finally, after a series of disputes and stalemates along that border, uh, starting in about the early 2000s, what happened in 2020 is that they, they finally couldn't manage that uh, peacefully. Uh, and you saw about 20 Indian soldiers die hmm. in some really awful uh, skirmishing, basically hand-to-hand combat in the, in the high Himalayas. And you, we believe that about four, but possibly many more, the Chinese also died uh, in that skirmish. And ever since then, you've seen a, a kind of a cold diplomacy between the two sides. The Indian foreign minister describes the relationship as abnormal across their border. And India has tried to do a number of things to kind of get China to back down. India's uh, New Delhi believes that China has effectively seized what India claims to be parts of its territory without backing down. The two sides have mobilized forces consider tens of thousands of horses up to uh, very close to that border. Um, So they're kind of standing, looking at each other eye to eye, and in a very dangerous and potentially quite escalatory way in a place which is hard to get to, hard to figure out what exactly is going on, but has the potential, going back to 1962, to bring about an actual serious military conflict. So you know, in a, in a way we're we're going back in time in history in terms of a, a long-standing dispute over a border but I'll conclude on this in a way this is all very different because in the past that re- the remoteness of that border meant that neither side really fortified it uh, they did fight in 62 but it was really hard for either side to get their men and material up to that border mm-hmm. what's happened over the past few decades is that the Chinese because they're quite capable they've been building an a, incredible amount of infrastructure on their side of the border, rail lines, all kinds of roads, all kinds of barracks and other military facilities, which enabled the Chinese to defend that border and even to kind of push their claims very effectively. And the Indians are just trying to keep up. And in doing so, both sides, uh, again, different from from in the 60s, both sides are bringing, as I said before, tens of thousands of troops up in very close proximity in ways that are that are quite dangerous, um, and their dispute and the fact that they've you know already had this uh, violence is leading them to do more and more of this. So there's a possibility over the coming years that you could see uh, you know a major military conflict of the sort that we haven't seen between the two of them in the past.
0: Let's move on to 2014 and 2019 when Narendra Modi was first elected in 2014. Re-elected in 2019, and of course in 2024, will face the voters again. Tell us a little bit about Narendra Modi. We've ser- he's been here to the Bay Area several times. He each time he comes to the Bay Area, he fills a, he fills the stadium with Arden supporters. Of course, as you know, the Indian American community here in the Bay Area is quite large. There are about 300,000 plus. Indian Americans, in particularly in the South Bay, in Silicon Valley area, but uh, enormously popular and always gets a rousing, rousing welcome when he comes to the Bay Area. Talk to me about Narendra Modi and how was he and his party, the BJP, how did they differ from the Congress party, which of course governed India for most of its history?
1: Yeah, so Narendra Modi has, um, as you rightly put it, has become a a singular political force on the Indian national stage. As prime minister, he has now won twice. He looks likely to win a third time in upcoming national elections um, this spring and early summer. He is the leader of the uh, BJP party, a Hindu nationalist party, which I can explain in a moment, but he is also charismatic quite popular figure uh, as far as we can tell through polling data and so on uh, across much of India. And he has been a very energetic campaigner at home, but also a very energetic uh, diplomat overseas. Uh, He's traveled the world uh, and he's made it his business to cultivate ties and friendships pretty much anywhere that you can find in the world. And he's done so uh, pretty effectively in nearly every instance. I think we're talking about the differences with China. Even with China, when he came into office, there was an expectation in Beijing that they would have a good relationship with Narendra Modi. He had previously been a chief minister in Gujarat. He had traveled to China on numerous occasions, had extensive uh, relations, business ties uh, with China. So they thought they could work with him as well. So he's a, a capable political figure, but he is very different. To get to the second point, he's very different from what india had seen before indian politics had since independence largely been dominated by the congress party the party of uh, nehru uh, the party of independence and congress party was a big tent veered or socialist particularly under indira gandhi it was in a way a sort of they described them as secular uh, pluralist devoted to and dedicated to the cause of democracy and advancing democracy in india so a kind of left of center, uh, big tent coalition kind of party that brought together a wide variety of diversity of, of Indian politicians and political forces across decades of history. That big tent began to break down. One of the challenges to that big tent was sort of a right of center, you might describe it at least in American terms, movement driven by a kind of a different vision of India. And that is a Hindu nationalist vision. That vision has been in place certainly for decades and actually predates the founding of India. It was a a force in Indian politics prior to independence. It kind of uh, waxed and waned, but it has continued to have thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of adherents across Indian society, mainly organized through civil society organizations, among them one called the RSS. RSS. Uh, groups dedicated to advancing the idea that India is, at its core, uh, a Hindu nation. A nation that is its identity is defined by Hinduism, if not the religion, then at least an attachment, an ethnic attachment to that as a, as a concept. What this means is, instead of being secular or pluralistic or devoted to a kind of a democracy in a liberal or American-style sense or Western sense... Um, this is a view that sees that what makes India special is its uh, its Hinduism and its Hindu identity. And Narendra Modi is a flag bearer of this organization. He was very active as a as a volunteer, as a then a, a, a professional member of the RSS, the civil society organization, and then came up through the ranks within the BJP to the chief ministership, and then finally. To uh, the prime ministership. What all of this means, you know, from an American perspective is that we should understand that uh, an India led by a Hindu nationalist will, I think, have a different worldview, will be dedicated to seeing the world and to seeing India in different terms. And I'll just say two things about that. The first would be India is, as a practical matter, an incredibly diverse mm-hmm. society with, you know, many, many different religions and languages and, um in truly ethnicities and so on. It's hard to define it as a Hindu nation, but in doing so, the Hindu nationalists have the potential they would like to unify the, the society, but they also have the potential to pick fights uh, with all of the minorities of India, which amount to hundreds of millions of people, with the largest minority being uh, Muslims in India. So Hindu nationalists and Muslims have historically come to blows, including through um, bloody communal violence between the two. That's point one. And point two would be As a Hindu nationalist leader like Narendra Modi looks out into the world, Uh, he doesn't, importantly, see the world as defined as one in which democracies are in some way fundamentally um, at odds with autocracies. Uh, That's not the defining element uh, of global politics for someone like him. Nor is it purely a world of states versus states, of power politics. No, uh, for for a Hindu nationalist, the world is principally defined as a competition between civilizations between societies that are defined by deeper social religious cultural attachments and india is a thousands of years old civilization as is china or iran and a few other places on earth and therefore india is defined in those terms and is fundamentally in competition with those other civilizations from this perspective the united states or western europe would be seen as abrahamic or Mm judeo-christian civilizations the middle east an islamic civilization you know this is a really different kind of way to see the world uh, and it means that you're likely to seek different things to see the world differently i think americans should understand that when they hear someone like uh, modi speak they should interpret his words through this kind of a prism
0: in the nine years that he's been prime minister he's worked with three american presidents barack obama donald trump and most recently joe biden and during that time in all three administrations there has been a, a closeness that he he seems to get he seems to have gotten along well with all three we've seen the the Quad, this uh, defense association between India, the United States, Australia, and Japan. And then most recently, under President Biden, just announced last week at the APEC conference here in San Francisco, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. Dan, give us a sense of those two associations, if you will, first the Quad on the defense side, and then the IPEF on the trade economic side, and and of course, Modi's relationship with Biden, Trump, and Obama. Is he the one who's personally driving this attachment or getting closer to the United States? Or is is the shoe on the other foot? Is it the three different American presidents who are driving this Getting closer to to India.
1: Well, look, Modi, as I said before, an incredibly skilled politician, but also a skilled diplomat. He's made it his business to cultivate good relations with exceptionally different types of American presidents. So he deserves some credit for for making things work, you know, with people as different as um, Obama, Trump, and and Biden. But the but you're right to to recognize that the core driver in this relationship, at least from the U.S. side, um, is is a sort of a strategic recognition that India, no matter who runs it, whether it's Modi or anybody else, whether they go back to Congress Party or whatever, um, India is huge. India has a lot of potential. India is a massive neighbor next door to China, uh, overlooking, in a sense, all of the Indian Ocean, which is a critical spot on the the world trade route uh, map. And uh, for all of those reasons, and the expectation that India will only continue to be more important in world politics, uh, as the United States and China may be in a more competitive, even conflict-prone kind of relationship, all those things make American presidents and their top advisors see building a relationship with India as being critically important to the U.S. national interest. And so all of them have worked to find initiatives to bring India more into the fold with the United States with the hope that if they can invest in the U.S.-India relationship now, that will pay dividends uh, over the long term. And by the way, this sort of um, set of initiatives, this impulse, strategic perspective predates Obama, predates Modi. And I was working at the State Department uh, uh, during the, the Bush administration. It was very much a driver in an effort to, to build ties with India, which at that time was Uh, under, you know, different leadership, also BJP, but, uh, pre Modi leadership. So, um, so this is something that's been consistent now over, you know, about five different presidencies, really going back to the Clinton administration. Um, but it's for a strategic purpose. So you mentioned the Quad and IPEF, and these are bits and pieces of the kind of the architecture or framework that the United States is trying to use to build up. Uh, its presence in Asia. Of course, a number of American presidents have said we needed to be more active in Asia and to demonstrate to other countries in Asia uh, that we were relevant and that we have something to offer, which is maybe different from what uh, Beijing has to offer, something attractive uh, that we can be useful to them. And so the Quad, uh, which includes the United States, India, Japan, and Australia, is an organization that know, really had its roots all the way back in 2004, but it's taken a while to gestate. And the goal now is to show that these four countries, all of them, by the way, democracies, so that's something Washington has often played up, that these four countries can do something they talk about to provide public goods to the region. So to provide things that will be useful, not just for the four of them, but for other countries in the region. So they, for instance, launched a vaccine diplomacy campaign during the COVID era. Uh, more recently, they've announced a maritime domain awareness uh, initiative, which is basically to help other countries in the region see what's happening out in the indo Indian Ocean, in parts of the Pacific, to basically give them a window for fishermen or, or even for navies to, to better understand what's happening out there, to um, provide uh, those capabilities. And that's something that, again, they're trying to, d- basically this is a kind of a soft, it's not an alliance per se mm. it's not a military operation it's not principally a security initiative it's it's a, a softer way of showing the benefits of working um with these countries and and something washington's very much invested in um and then last on um, you mentioned the IPF, the indo-pacific economic framework now this is the biden administration's attempt to show asia and the indo-pacific region more broadly uh that the united states has some kind of an economic uh, presence, and plan for the region, uh, sort of a second ba- a second best step. Of course, there was the Trans-Pacific Partnership before that, during mm-hmm. the Obama administration, never went through, got pulled down by the Trump administration. Trade policy isn't something the United States does terribly well anymore, including in Asia, but elsewhere as well. And so this is a second best effort with a kind of a different approach, a more voluntary approach uh, in terms of membership, With different pillars that include uh, most notably a supply chain resilience pillar an effort to build up better more secure relations so that we can avoid supply chain problems that we certainly experienced in the in the last few years Um, it is the subtext here is that china is not a member uh, and that again the united states can play a useful and valuable positive role in the lives of asian states and societies and economies Uh, in a way that will make us an attractive partner going forward. Um, And India is, to some extent, a part of that. They've agreed to three of the four pillars, or to at least be a negotiating partner in three of them, not the trade pillar, which is not surprising, given India's differences with us on trade in the past. But they have said that they want to be a part of this um, supply chain pillar. And part of that is because India is looking to benefit from the relocation or diversification of um, supply chains and um, uh, industrial capacity away from, to some extent, China, and to a variety of other countries. And India would like to be, would very much like to benefit from that, because India needs everything that it can get uh, in terms of building up its economy, finding jobs for its many people, uh, and so on. So that's you know a lot of different pieces here, but they're all dedicated to this this broad agenda. Of Working closely with India, the United States, seeing India as a necessary and potentially even the necessary uh, partner in Asia, largely because of India's size, its heft, its population and its potential uh, going forward.
0: You know, as we have gotten closer to India, both with the Quad and IPEF, at the same time, India continues to be almost silent on Russia's invasion of Ukraine. They continue to transact with Russia. They've not acted on the economic sanctions. They're buying oil from Russia. Knowing that this is such a, a key Western U.S.-led, but a Western foreign policy goal to bring Russia to its senses over Ukraine, India just seems to want to have nothing to do with those that initiative from the United States and the West. Is the Biden administration simply turning a blind eye? to india's lack of enthusiasm to criticize russia
1: right yeah you, you you hit it on the head india has not bought the u.s uh, characterization of russia's war against ukraine and does not see the need to pull away from what has been a long-standing as we discussed already historical relationship with moscow to the contrary has actually upped its imports of russian hydrocarbons and is a major refiner russian oil um, and continues to the extent that it's possible to buy russian arms uh, military defense equipment which is an important part of the indian arsenal in fact is the the largest part of the indian arsenal the biden administration has basically come to terms with this and It's done so for a number of reasons, but among them, it recognizes, as India has pointed out on repeated occasions, that India really has no choice. It's invested in in Russian defense equipment. All of its military, much of it, relies on um, Russian-made stuff, and you can't turn that around overnight, and it would be an incredibly expensive proposition for uh, India to try. Moreover, as we discussed, India has an acute and active threat along its border from China, United States is sensitive to that, and so it doesn't want to do things that would make India weaker uh, in the face of that Chinese threat. And beyond that, India's top diplomats have repeatedly pointed out that India is not the problem here. That is, India didn't make Russia a problem, and that India's buying of Russian oil isn't the reason why Russia continues to be a problem. In fact, a number of European states have continued to buy Russian oil and so on, and has often pointed that out. Um, And so India doesn't want to be held responsible, doesn't want its people to suffer from higher fuel prices uh, because of a war that it feels that it had nothing to do with. And then finally, as I said earlier, India simply its own worldview doesn't admit that this is a war that is, as the Biden administration has tried to suggest, that this is a war that is um, best understood as Democracy defending itself against autocracy. Indians tend to try to highlight uh, Russia's own national interests, which they apparently seem to have some sympathy for. They believe that the encroachment of NATO in Europe and so on have led to Russian insecurities. Uh, They buy into that narrative. Uh, They tend to repeat that uh, when pressed. And so, this is again, as I said earlier, a kind of a reflection of India having at root a different perspective on the world from the United States and not buying into what we're selling. The Biden administration, as I say, I don't think they've just turned a blind eye, but they have been sensitive to Indian concerns. And what they've really kept their eye on, the prize, they believe, is a long-term strategic partnership with India verging on an alliance that they hope will be essential to their purposes with respect to China. So they don't want this war and India's response to it to screw that up, and so they're dedicated to kind of retaining, a, as I would say, a laser-like focus uh, on what India can do for them with respect to China, and not being distracted.
0: In your article in Foreign Affairs, and and I commend that to uh, to all of all of our listeners. Uh, terrific article, and um, we've only just uh, we've only just touched on it in this conversation so far today. But you you talk about the transactional nature of doing business between the United States and India. And the fact that, again, we so often, different administrations have talked about our common democratic traditions. Those common democratic traditions, unlike the relationships that we have with Western Europe, with Japan, with Republic of Korea, with other Western-oriented liberal democracies, those values those democratic values don't seem to be at the basis of our relationship with India and as you argue in the in your article the the nature of our relationship is much more transactional which then leads me to the conclusion that just as quickly as you can do a transaction the next government coming into power says i'm not going to transact with you, or I'm not going to do those kind of transactions anymore, if you don't have a common basis of values. Am I oversimplifying what you said in your article, Dan?
1: No, I think, I think, though, you know, transactional can be a bad word. (laughs) But in a way, it can also in the way that you've constructed it, right, that it is, it's not founded on something deeper. And I agree with that. I think if we had uh, our choice, we would want to see an India that of saw the world similarly to how we see it. That would make us much more comfortable and confident about the future. I mean, imagine that that were the case. We would see no problem in doing everything we could to support India's rise, and in doing so, expecting that we could be partners forever in trying to build um, a world in our own image, one that uh, would be advancing uh, liberal purposes, rule of law, and so on, in ways that would make Americans and then Indians very, very comfortable. If we can't do that, if we can't be confident about that, and I'm not sure that we can, we can still hope, but I just don't see it as likely, then we have a second best alternative, which is to say, look, you know, transactional can also be a good thing. Uh, transactional can mean that we get good things out of it and the Indians get good things out of it. And a transaction, yes, can be short-term, but you can also build long-term contracts uh, and you can build Relations where there's an expectation of continuing to do good business with one another because it's good for both sides. It's kind of, a you know, to use a, a frequent Chinese phrase, you know, win-win uh, propositions. <laughs> yes. So the United States and India can be win-win. What is noteworthy about this relationship is that you know, we've done relatively little with one another for decades of our history. And now we're only barely beginning to scratch the surface in terms of catching up, particularly mm-hmm. on the economic front, but in other ways as well, there's so much more we could be doing people to people, education ties, commercial ties, technology ties, and so on, that even if we only did with India, the kinds of things or the kinds of business that we're more than happy to do with lots of other societies that are not democratic, we don't pretend they're democratic, we don't talk about them as having shared values, places like Vietnam, or historically like China, even if we're willing to just do that much. There'd be a huge amount more that we could do with India. I think that's where we should be putting our emphasis. Um, What that means is sort of raising the bar of cooperation with India in lots and lots of ways, but simultaneously, in a sense, lowering the ceiling or lowering our expectations at the high end. There are going to be things that we probably shouldn't be expecting to do with India and we shouldn't expect India to do with us, that we do with our allies, that we do with countries where we have a deeper sense um, of shared values so like we have with our some of our closest allies we have the five eyes intelligence mm-hmm. sharing relationship this is something that makes sense when you're talking about the UK uh, or Australia countries we've fought wars with together countries we can safely assume will continue to see eye to eye with us for decades to come um, or at least we hope that is the case so we share very sensitive intelligence with them with Canada as well with India India is not there Mm -hmm. and india may never be there and that shouldn't be necessarily an expectation on our part or on their part it also isn't necessarily a bad thing i mean we we, uh we work with vietnam uh increasingly Mm -hmm. we have a shared interest in working with vietnam vietnam was an adversary an enemy (laughs) but now we see them as a useful strategic partner in asia on china's border and we're working with them in a variety of important ways Um, If we can do that with Vietnam, we can do a lot of things with India. Um, And so that's how I think we ought to be seeing it. Not just transactional as a bad word, but transactional as a a realistic proposition that benefits both sides.
0: You mentioned armaments and how the Soviet Union and, of course, uh, Russia today is the primary supplier of arms to India. However, in part because of what we've seen uh, of um, material failures, equipment failures by the Russian forces in Ukraine, Russian arms have are perhaps less reliable and not as uh, current and up-to-date as Western arms. So why did India turn to France to buy 26 new Raphael uh, jet fighters and is mulling over buying six Scorpion submarines from France rather than from the United States.
1: Well, to be fair, India is trying to buy things from us too. Um, they've announced a plan to buy, I think, 31 Reaper drones. They've now um, there seem to be moving forward on a, a jet engine deal with GE. We've got supply. Uh, logistic aircraft, uh, other surveillance aircraft and so on. So they're definitely buying things from the US. Uh, They may be buying um, striker, personnel carriers. So I think the better way to see it, yes, they bought stuff from France. They're buying things from Israel. They continue to buy from Russia. It's a diversification campaign. India doesn't see any one partner as uh, the one that it wants to do all of its business with. It wants to have negotiating leverage with everyone. The French have been relatively forthcoming when it comes to sharing technology. So the Indians are eager not just to buy stuff, but they want to get the underlying technology so that they can build it for themselves uh, as the years go by. Uh, They have a very strong interest, particularly Modi, in an indigenization campaign um, to make sure to bring the technology home to India. So that's the way that I would see it. French have been shrewd uh, at business relations with India for decades now. No surprise, they're winning certain contracts from India uh, where they can, but they're not alone. And I think we should expect you to see that. And frankly, that's not all that bad. Uh, yes, it'd be good for American business if India just decided to shift for the sale toward us, uh, but they're going to get some better cost-effective opportunities elsewhere. And the more that they are working with our allies and partners, that's probably generally a good thing, even if it's not uh, with us. So that's that's the realistic take. Mm -hmm. I think, and and probably pragmatism on India's side is probably the best way to interpret their their buying campaign.
0: Well, Dan, in the remaining few minutes of the podcast, what are your closing thoughts about where the United States and India are headed?
1: I guess one thing I would say is that when the Biden administration came into office, it devoted a tremendous amount of energy to advancing the relationship with India. Um, One of the first things it did was it picked up on the the quad that the Trump administration had been pushing, this 4 way relationship with, that includes India as well as Australia and Japan, um, wanted to have a quad summit, uh, has done a number of these, has had significant bilateral ties uh, with Modi, invited him to Washington, a big state visit, big hugs and handshakes and deals and so on. I mean, the amount of activity and energy at the very topmost levels within the U.S. government, within the Biden administration advancing the relationship with India has been nothing short of spectacular. Hmm. I wouldn't have really expected it. I would have expected that this administration would have put more emphasis on traditional U.S. allies like Japan, Australia, South Korea, and in Europe as well. Um, so this has been a surprising feature of the relationship. In many ways, I think it's a very welcome feature. I think that kind of energy is the sort of thing that's necessary to propel more ambitious agenda with New Delhi to keep us all on track and to keep it moving forward and not get kind of caught in setbacks. On the other hand, you said we've been maybe looking the other way, the Biden administration looking the other way on India's behavior with respect to Russia. I think some of that is problematic. I also think, and one thing we haven't talked about India is doing other problematic things as well. And the most spectacular one, the one that's getting into the headlines now, is, it appears, steps to assassinate, to kill Sikh activists, one at least based in Canada, perhaps several based in Pakistan. And then most recently, there is at least an allegation that India was on its way to try to kill off one based in the United States. This is not the kind of behavior that we expect to see from a close strategic partner or a fellow democracy. Uh, this crosses a serious red line, um, and this unfortunately, in my view, is a reflection that the current leader leadership in New Delhi doesn't see the world in precisely the same way that we do. Uh, they don't buy the same rules of the road. They do not see that as a fellow democracy, certain things should be off limits, including killing citizens of other democracies on their soil. This is a worrisome trend. I hope it's the kind of thing that can be managed. I know it's the kind of thing the Biden administration really wants to manage without getting into more trouble, but it's it's a kind of a bit of an alarm bell going off. And things like this have the potential to turn an accelerated U.S.-India partnership into something that's more frustrating than fruitful. And that's what I worry about going forward. So I'd say watch that space. Lots of good news in this story, um, but some, some worrisome Uh, trends as well.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, Dan, are you working on any new projects that our listeners should be looking out for?
1: Yeah, I mean, at USIP, we're doing a lot on the US-India relationship and a lot that has to do with India and China. Uh, We have some projects in the works uh, by by other authors, including on the India-Pakistan relationship, on India's uh, understanding of China's expanding nuclear arsenal and how India may respond to that. And how India is relating to uh, some of its other uh, neighbors, some of its smaller neighbors that we haven't really had a chance to talk about, like Bangladesh or Sri Lanka or Nepal. So these are all areas where I'll be focusing, um, but especially on how India does or does not factor into U.S. calculations as we look forward to a future of, it appears, continued at least geopolitical competition with China. You know, where does India line up? Those are the kinds of questions I'll continue to be asking.
0: Well, Dan, how can our listeners follow you?
1: Uh, Well, I'm on X, or what used to be called Twitter, at Daniel, And uh, I'd also commend the USIP website, uh, usip.org, which is constantly updated, includes all of our writing and links to everything we do there and elsewhere. I've got a number of excellent colleagues also working on India, on the region, on China, on really the rest of the world as well. So anything that you're interested in, Uh, usip.org you'll probably find something relevant there as well
0: and Dan, for the benefit of our listeners please just give the reference to the foreign affairs article that we've uh, we've been discussing in this conversation
1: sure yeah it's uh india as it is is the title and it was in i think the june july issue uh, of foreign affairs this past year
0: Mm -hmm. well dan thank you so much for joining us today for all your research And thank you for taking the time this day before Thanksgiving to share your perspective on India and U.S. relations. And we look forward to having you back again as this ongoing story unfolds in the months and years ahead.
1: Absolutely. Thank you, Jim.
0: My pleasure. And for our listeners, today's episode is number 475. Listen to us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, Pandora, 18 platforms, and join our global audience that spans 60 countries. Feedspot has recently recognized us as a top 25 California news podcast. This has been the San Francisco Experience with Jim Hurley, coming to you from San Francisco. Thank you.